Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. All right, are you guys ready for the word today? Someone say yes. I'm excited to preach. Uh, We have been in a series for... Uh, a little too long uh, in the book of James called Practical Faith, but fear not, it is ending next week, and that is really good news for some of you because the content has been a bit aggressive over the last few weeks, um, but uh, I'm actually really excited about preaching today, and if you're joining us uh, for the first time at this series in Practical Faith, the reason we're calling it Practical Faith is because the word practical means to actually do something instead of just have a concept or an idea about something, and we want to be the kind of people in Jesus, in Christianity, in our faith that don't don't just believe something, but that actually allow our beliefs to cause us to do something, do something in our city, do something with our lives, take advantage of the future. And, uh, and that's the kind of church we want to be. And honestly, the book of James is one of the most practical books in the Bible. Uh, and if you look at the Old Testament and the book of Proverbs, many have called the book of James sort of the New Testament Proverbs. It's simple instructions as to what a life in Christ should look like. Uh, it's not like Ikea instructions, come on somebody, that you have to like, you know, have a PhD to understand stand and then drink a glass of wine to recover from. Hallelujah. But it is, it is very simple. Sorry, that was inappropriate. Take that off the recording. Um, but uh, it's very simple and it tells us how to live our life now that we've come to know Jesus. And so today we're going to dive into chapter four. Uh, we've made it to almost the end and then we'll conclude next week in chapter five. But I have a lot of content today and so I want to pray and we're going to get into this. And if you're taking notes, uh, I want you to title this sermon, We've Been Here Before. We've been here before. Let's pray and get into it. Jesus, we love you today, and I thank you for your presence. I thank you for the powerful time in worship. I thank you for Chi and the amazing baptism today. Uh, Thank you that even as she said over the last six weeks, you have given her a new hope and a new outlook on life. Uh, I pray that that would be the reality for many in the room today. If someone walked in this room downcast or confused or trying to figure things out and don't really know what the next step looks like, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, illuminate the path for them today. You said that the steps of the righteous get brighter and brighter until the full gleam of dawn. Lord, illuminate what the next step looks like. Illuminate that there is, in fact, a plan and a purpose and a future available to every single one of us today. And as we go to your word, I pray that you would do what you've promised, that you would change our lives today. We actually believe that over 35 minutes as we spend time in the word, you can change our hearts and change the way we think, and we can leave this place different than when we walked in. We love you, and we thank you in advance for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Oh, my God, we thank you that the Warriors are going to the playoffs, that they clinched it yesterday. Amen. Okay. You should be a little more excited about that. Come on. Root for the home team. All right. James chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what he says. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Uh, Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask God, you don't get it because your motives are wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. You adulterers. Really encouraging way to start out a service. Awesome. Okay. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Pause there real quick. Anytime an author in the Bible repeats themselves, they are trying to establish what I'm telling you right now is really important and you should pay attention. 
This isn't something you should just skim over and go, okay, I did my Bible reading plan for the day. Thank you, Jesus. Check. He's saying, pay close attention to what I'm saying. This, this, has, this has an eternal impact on you. If you want to be a friend of the world, you position yourself as an enemy of God. What do you think the scriptures mean when they say that the spirit God has placed within us is filled with envy? Verse 6, but he gives us even more grace. I want to unpack this a little bit because there's a lot there. Um, but James begins in verse 1 of chapter 4 to address a problem that is facing the culture of the day. Uh, the, not just the culture at large, but the culture in church. And he's saying, hey, guys, you started off well with Jesus. Like things were going okay. You were, you were doing what God had asked you to do. You were living selflessly. You were living generously. You were serving one another. And, and things were going well. But You've kind of slipped up a little bit. And as he's done in the previous three chapters, he begins to address a specific area that needs to be changed, shifted, a mindset that needs to be adjusted. He says, guys, you're starting to think like and operate like the rest of the world. They scheme and they fight and they scrape and they're all about self-promotion and they're all about, you know, their own brand. And they're trying to, trying to, trying to get their name out there and make it good for them with, the, with everybody else kind of in second place. And this, this attitude you've got has actually made its way into your prayer life. It's not just the way you act on your job site or, you know, out in, in, in the community. But when you come to God and you begin to talk to him, your, your prayers are even suffering as a result of this worldly mentality that you've slipped back into. You've begun to pray carnally and you've been praying amiss, as one uh, translation says. In other words, you're praying prayers that will never get answered. As you come to God, you're, you're asking him to do things for you that have nothing to do with his plan for your life. Instead of praying the way that you were taught to be prayed, which, or to be prayed, to pray, uh, which is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Not my will, not my plan, but God, your plan on earth. You've begun to pray, God, my will be done <laughs> and my plan to come. That's how you're praying. Like, I don't know if you've ever prayed a prayer like that before, and I don't want to point any fingers, but Perhaps you've gotten into a place sometimes where you begin to pray your will at the cost of God's will for your own life. Like, God, I pray for the promotion so that I can make more money, so that I can buy more stuff for myself, so that I can get the Tesla, and then, you know, maybe I'll give. But you ain't giving now, so I'm sorry, that just got quiet. Okay, so you're beginning to pray prayers that will never get answered because they're not aligned with God's will for your life. And then he takes a rather aggressive turn in verse 4, and he makes... Pretty intense accusation. He says, you adulterers. Okay, we were just going through okay and you were addressing some stuff, but now you've turned a corner and you, you've begun to slap me around a little bit. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Let me say it again. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Or have you forgotten, and I, this line is so intriguing to me, we're gonna unpack this a bit. Don't you realize that the spirit that God has placed on the inside of you is jealous for you? That God envies when someone else has your affection, someone else has your attention. He's jealous for you. What, what an intense statement. Let's, let's dive into that a bit. Um, I was doing some math this week, and I discovered that Robin and I, we've known each other for 25 years. 
Uh, in fact, we've been romantically connected with each other now for 25 years, uh, which doesn't mean that I'm in my 40s. It just means that we started really, really young. Uh, we actually grew up around the corner from each other. Uh, we went to elementary school together, and we went to junior high together, and we went to high school together. In fact, we used to walk to junior high together. I'm going to look at you while I say this. It's going to be fun, okay? <laughs> We would walk to junior high together, and, and I remember we just, we, we loved spending time to, uh, with each other, and I really wanted to be her boyfriend, and I think she really wanted to be my girlfriend, uh, but as a 12-year-old walking to junior high, you really haven't developed, like, your game yet, you know, you don't really know how to flirt, and so I remember one day we're walking to junior high, and she had these really baggy pants on, which was cool back in the day, and, uh, and, and there was like a, uh, like a thread hanging from the bottom from the, from the seam, and I thought, you know what'll get her, if I step on that. And, and, and then, you know, she's going to trip and she thinks it's cute. And so I, I step on the, the back of her pant leg and it like rips halfway up, all the way up to her knee. And I didn't know what to do. So I'm like, oh, and I literally push her in a bush. That's where we're walking. I'm like, nothing shows your affection like abuse and ruining your clothing, right? Like, that's how you flirt when you're 12 years old. You don't know any better. I love you. Uh, but... I mean, we, we had this little back and forth thing going on for years all throughout junior high and all throughout high school where uh, I would like her and she wouldn't like me and then she would like me and I wouldn't like her and we were always in other relationships and it would seem that our love life could never align. But all of that changed one day at my senior prom. I promise this is not a Lifetime movie. This is like actual real life Tim and Robin love story, okay? So here's the backdrop. Uh, she had recently gotten out of a relationship and she had dumped this guy, but she had promised him that she would go to prom with him. Um, I had promised a friend of mine that I would go to prom with her. So both of us are going to prom with people that we don't really want to be with. They're just friends of ours, but we end up in, in these dates. And uh, as circumstance would have it, uh, we decided to collectively all rent a limo together. So I'm looking at the girl I want to be with and she's looking at the guy she wants to be with in a limo with people we don't want to be with. And... <laughs> There were, I can neither confirm nor deny, there were a few moments where, you know, our hands would like slip, you know, behind the seats and we're like secretly holding forbidden hands so that our dates couldn't see it. It's awesome. Uh, but we get to prom and uh, I remember like seeing her dance with this other guy and she's watching me dance with this other girl, but we really want to dance with each other. So we found these moments to kind of rendezvous throughout the night and we danced together during certain songs. And, you know, while I'm dancing with my date and she's dancing with hers, I'm looking over at her on the dance floor, you know, Casey and Jojo's going like, I will never find another lover sweeter than you. And I'm looking at her and mouthing the lyrics to her, more precious than you. I will never find another lover. Anyway. My day's trying to lay her head on my shoulder. I'm like, yeah, precious than you, precious than you. <laughs> but all night long, I remember staring across, across the dance floor going, I'm jealous of this other guy because I want to be with her. And I know that she wants to be with me, but I'm stuck with this other dance partner. Someone that I don't even like. It's, it's just a friend, but this friend is keeping me from what I truly want. I want to be with her because I actually know what it's like with her. We had dated before and I knew that life was better when we were together. But this relationship that I didn't really want to be in was keeping me from true intimacy with the one that I loved. This friendship. And in a way, this is sort of what James is describing in this scripture. He's saying there, there is a relationship that has gotten in the way with your intimacy with God. 
There's, there's this relationship that we need to address. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation before where you're living life and it seems like you're looking at God and God is looking at you and you're like, I want to be with him and I know he wants to be with me, but I can't seem to connect the dots. I feel like there's a lack of intimacy there. I know what it's like with God because I've been there before. There's joy with God and there's purpose with God and there's pleasure with God and there's blessing with God and there's wholeness with God and I so desperately want what what I can find in that relationship, but I feel like I'm stuck with this other dance partner that I can't seem to step away from. And James says, hey, this, this partner, she has a name. And, and her name is the world. And she has captivated the attention of many unsuspecting before and cause them to dance with her a little bit longer than perhaps they should. And we need to remember that God is not okay with sharing dance partners. He's like, guys, you can't have both of these people in your life. You can't have all that God has for you and still want to, to dance a little bit and have a bit of a relationship with the world. It just doesn't work that way. Let me remind us today that intimacy requires exclusivity. The nature of intimate relationship is that it's only you and only me. I give you all of myself and I get all of you in return. God is not interested in cohabiting your heart. He's not okay with another lover living in there with you. He wants every aspect of who you are. He doesn't want to be one of many. He wants to be your one and only. But here's the good news. You were fashioned for the exact same thing with God. Your heart was fashioned for intimacy with him. Your greatest fulfillment is going to be found on the other side of full commitment to Jesus. When you say, I want nothing else but your plan for my life. I want nothing else but what you have for me. And this relationship is more important than any other relationship on the planet. It's you and you alone. But if we want that level of intimacy with God, we have got to address this other relationship. This, this other dance partner. We have to address the world that seems to be waltzing us away from our God. We need to call that relationship what it is. And here's what James says. He says, you adulterers. He calls this relationship adultery. He says, you, you have this friendship with the world that has made you an enemy of God and you have provoked God to jealousy. You adulterers. Now, now let's, let's think about this for a moment because when somebody is accused of adultery, what we're saying is that there has been an intimacy that's broken because you've been intimate with another. We would assume that there's some form of sexual intimacy that James is referring to here if he's accusing the hearers of this letter of adultery. So we would expect the next line in the sentence to describe some sort of an inappropriate relationship that this person has with the world. But that's not what he says. He says, you adulterers, you have become friends with the world. Does that seem like an overreaction to anybody else but me? Like a friendship? You're accusing me of adultery because of a friendship. That 
that doesn't register. Like, like Robin and I, we're, we're pretty good friends with John and Priscilla here. They're some of our greatest friends here in the city, and we go to their house often, and they, uh, they come to our house often, and we're, we're all collectively friends. And there will be times when I'm sitting in the kitchen and I'm talking to Priscilla about worship stuff because she was singing this morning. We're talking about worship or John and Robin are talking in the living room and we're having these conversations. But never once when they have left my house has my wife looked at me and she goes, you adulterer. I saw you talking to Priscilla in the kitchen. How dare you? You're friends with her? No, that would be an overreaction because we're just friends. How can you equate friendship to adultery? So this bothered me. And being the good student of the Bible that I am, I did some research. And let me tell you what I expected to find, okay? I expected that as I dove into this word friendship in the Greek, that I was going to unpack some amazing truth that I could share with all of you this morning about how this word doesn't really mean friendship, but it actually means like something more intimate than that. Uh, there's, there's four different uh, words for love in the Greek. We have one in the English language, they have four. Uh, one of them is storge that talks about uh, love for a family member. Another is uh, eros, which talks about a sexual love or an erotic love. Uh, another one is agape, an unconditional love. And the other is phileo, like a friendship level love, kind of a casual love. And I fully expected that as I dove into this word, because sometimes the English language translates those words for love into friend, I'm like, oh, well, surely what James means here is eros, that really intimate, only to be shared between lovers kind of love. It's not what he said. In fact, the English has a really good translation when it says friendship. He says phileo, this friendship, casual, just sort of like we know each other, hey, buddy, kind of love. So now I'm confused. And I'm like, okay. Sitting in front of my computer, James, this doesn't make sense. How can friendship be equated to adultery? And I'm sitting at my computer and I'm praying and I'm frustrated. <laughs> and I'm like, God, these are your people. I got to tell them something on Sunday. What do you got? And this simple phrase drops into my spirit. And they'll throw this on the screen. You can write this down if you're taking notes. The reason James equates friendship to adultery is because friendship equals influence. Friendship is influence. You've heard this line before, right? Show me your friends and I'll, I'll show you your future. My favorite one, uh, someone said years ago, friends are like elevators. Some of them bring you down and some of them bring you up. That was a squat. Do you see that? That was great. Or an escalator, whatever you prefer. Your friendships are taking you somewhere. That's what those statements mean. You are going somewhere with the friendship you find yourself in. That influence is leading you somewhere, either closer to Jesus or further from Jesus. And here's the scary part. Often, those friendships take us somewhere without our knowledge, without our permission. It's subtle, and we don't actually realize how far we've drifted until it's a little bit too late. Let me give you an example. Um, I, uh, I recently became a, uh, a robe guy. Uh, my wife has been a robe girl for years, uh, and uh, she has tried many times. I should put this on. Worship among yourselves for a moment. Yeah, there we go. Okay. 
Now we're comfortable. Okay. I feel like a rapper. Someone give me a cup. All right. So for years, my wife has woken up and she puts on a robe and I'm like, I don't need a robe. Okay. I'm not Hugh Hefner. All right. I'm just, I'm, I'm a, I'm a regular guy. And then we got into uh, the city and some of the mornings were a little colder than I had realized. And uh, I'm like, you know what? I think I want to become a robe guy. I'm going to do the robe thing. And I realized Jesus wore a robe. So I'm among good company. So there you go. So I got a robe and I've been wearing this robe in the mornings. And uh, uh, often uh, I'll go down into my study in the morning in my robe and a cup of coffee and, you know, I'll spend time with Jesus. And the other day, as I was sitting down on this chair in my office to pray and read the Bible, I felt something like underneath me and, and it, was, it was bugging me. It was like right underneath my thigh. And so I, I, I get up and I look around and I can't find what it is. And so I sit back down and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to pray. And I'm praying. And like, I, this thing is just bugging me. And it's keeping me from like focusing on Jesus. And no matter where I looked, I could not find anything. I'm like, is it underneath the leather in the chair? What's going on here? Finally, uh, about an hour later, I go upstairs and I'm getting ready. And I take my robe off and I discover that I have a number of these things stuck to the inside of my robe. Uh, now, many of you don't know what this is unless you have small children. These are called bunchums. Um, bunchums are the most demonic creation that any toy manufacturer has ever come up with because they stick to everything. Your daughter has gotten them in her hair, and we almost had to give a poor little seven-year-old a buzz cut because of these stupid little bunchums. And so as I take off my robe, I realize these bunchums are stuck to the inside of my robe, and that is what I've been sitting on and was keeping me from true intimacy with Jesus in my study. Sometimes we exaggerate these analogies just so you can get the picture. So I'm like, how did I get bunchums on the inside of my robe? And then I realized, oh, well, earlier in the morning, I was walking around in uh, the, uh, the upstairs bedroom where my kids play, and uh, I was picking some stuff up, and they had some of these on the floor. And I actually didn't put them on the inside of my robe. I just was in their proximity. And by being in their proximity, they attached themselves to me. And then in attaching themselves to me, they created a problem for me later on down the road. I did not give them permission to attach themselves to me. It just sort of happened. I think this is what happens. I'm taking this thing off because I'm sweating now. I think that that so often is what happens with the world. It's just the nature of living on a fallen planet. Like, we, we just pick stuff up without realizing it, attitudes and mindsets and things from the culture we are surrounded by. And before we know it, those very things are keeping us from true intimacy with God who desires to be our one and only. The, the theologian N.T. Wright, uh, he says it like this, and I love the way he put it. He said, by the world here, James seems to mean, as often in Scripture, the way the world behaves, the pattern of life, the underlying implicit story, the things people want, expect, long for, and dream of that drive them to think and behave the way they do. If you go with the drift, if you don't reflect on what you're doing, but you just pick up habits of mind and body from all around you, chances are you will have become friends with the world in this sense. The world's friendship is subtle. It just sort of gets picked up along the way. You don't even realize that you're acting like the rest of the world until suddenly you're trying to get close to Jesus and you got this, this thing that seems to be getting in the way. So here's, here's the confronting question that I think all of us need to answer today. Have we gotten a little too friendly with the world? Have our ways been affected by the world's ways? And I don't mean the physical world. I'm talking about the systems of this world. 
the way the world thinks in its darkest sense, where it would take from somebody else their innocence, even their life, to get what we want? Are we operating in the same greed as the world? Are we operating in the same, like, self-serving, I want to promote myself way as the world? Or have we truly been transformed by Jesus? And here's, here's, I think, the deeper question we all have to answer. If we have gotten a little too friendly with the world, where does that leave us? Well, according to James, if we've gotten too friendly with the world, we've positioned ourselves as enemies of God. Come on, let, let that sit for just a second. An enemy of God. That hurts. I, I, I don't want to be his enemy. I've seen the way the enemies of God suffer in the Bible. But here's the deal. I've read the Bible enough to know that that's not God's plan for me. That God does not want me to remain an enemy of his. In fact, I know that the very last thing Jesus would ever want between he and I is that there would be enmity between us, that, that there would be some sort of division between us. That is the whole nature of the gospel. So if I find myself an enemy of God, then I think we need to come back to the central thought, the, the theme, the title of the message today. We need to realize if I, by actions, have positioned myself as an enemy because I've committed adultery and this friendship with the world, I need to remember I've been here before. I have been in this place before. The world around me has been in this place before. The guy on stage has been in this place before. I have found myself at odds with God, and I'll probably find myself there many more times before I see him in heaven. Which is why James does not end this entire rant with the accusation of adultery and enemies of God and say, sit in that and figure it out. He doesn't end by saying, well, you've made God jealous. You're an enemy. Go ahead. Fix your life and come back. No, the last words at the end of this rant are, but God gives us more grace. That despite what I've just said for the last four verses, there is more grace available. Somebody say more. More grace. In other words, at whatever capacity I have run away from God, at whatever capacity I have turned my back on him and I've flirted with the world or I've entered into an inappropriate relationship with the world, whatever length I've gone to to get away from God, he has gone to a greater length to win me back. That his grace is greater than my mistakes. His grace is greater than my failures. There is more grace available to me. More grace. I've been here before, but his grace rescued me. There is more grace available. And let me tell you why you need grace. Every single one of us needs grace because grace is the only thing that can bring reconciliation. You know what grace is, right? Grace is unmerited favor. It means you can do nothing to earn it. You can do nothing to deserve it. That's why we sing that song. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. But you give yourself away. Like that's that's the grace of God. It is freely given. It is freely received. We need grace because only grace can bring reconciliation. That's a fancy word. And that word is actually a word that I relearned this week. 
I was uh, spending some time with my daughters on Tuesday and Thursday. I've mentioned many times that we homeschool our kids. Pray for me uh, that they actually make it to college. Um, but uh, we homeschool our children. And as homeschooling, uh, as homeschool parents and teachers, um, it is my job to teach kids things like math and Bible and that sort of stuff. So on Tuesday and Thursday mornings, I teach math and Bible to my children. And as I was teaching uh, Bible to the kids this week, um, on Tuesday, a guy named Phil Vessler, who is one of the creators of VeggieTales, uh, has this cool little Bible study that we can do on Right Now Media. By, by the way, self, uh, uh, shameless plug for small groups. If you're not in a small group, all of you can get access for free to Right Now Media. It's an amazing resource. You can do Bible studies on there. If you have kids, I'm telling you, your kids will love to the Bible or learn to love the Bible as a result of the studies on there. And my kids love it. They love sitting down and hearing Phil tell us about the Bible. So we are going through this, uh, this series right now called What's God's Big Plan? And it's through the book of Ephesians. And as we're going through Tuesday, Ephesians chapter 2, Phil drops this line. And knowing I'm going to preach this message, I'm like, Phil, you're preaching my sermon for me. Thank you so much. I know it's cartoons, but I'm receiving from the word of God right now. He says, God's big plan, his whole plan has always been reconciliation. And reconciliation means to make enemies into friends. To take an enemy and turn that enemy into a friend. That's God's whole plan. That's, what he, that's, that's why he sent Jesus. That's the whole purpose of the gospel, to turn enemies into friends. And so I'm sitting there, you know, writing notes to the cartoon. And like, my kids are looking at me like, Dad, it's just, a, you know, <laughs> this is our Bible study, not yours. And I'm like, no, this is a big deal. Because when I read James chapter 4 and I have this revelation that my attitude and my actions and my position has put me in a place where I am now an enemy of God, I need to remember I've been here before, but God's whole plan was reconciliation from the beginning to take this enemy, this enemy who has positioned himself against God and to draw him close and to make him a friend once again. That's been his plan from day one. This is the gospel. The gospel is all about reconciliation. In fact, if you are in a position today where you feel like this relationship with the world has put you at odds with God, let me remind you what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. It says, for since our friendship with God was restored, past tense, restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies. Listen, pause. When, while you were still his enemy. Previous to that verse, it says, while you were still sinners, before you ever made a decision to follow Jesus, God sent Jesus to die a death that you, could, that you deserved and to live a life that you could never live so that you could be made right with him. So while we were still at odds with God, he made a way for us to become his friends. And we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Verse 10, another translation says it like this. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled, made friends again to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Yeah, you've probably heard this before, but I'm going to say it again because we've been here before and we need to hear it again. This is the nature of the gospel. That when we have positioned ourselves against him, that he makes a way for us to draw close again. If his grace was enough to save you, then his grace is enough for you today. It's enough to sustain you tomorrow. It's enough to draw you back time and time and time and time again. 
No matter how far you run, he can run further and he will drag you back into his arms and say, son, daughter, we've been dancing apart for far along, far too long. It's time for you to come back to me. His grace is sufficient for you. Let me appeal to someone who, today who would say, I have made one too many decisions. I have gone far too, far too far from God and there's no way that he can take me back. Yes, that's the very nature of what he did. You're welcome to the table again. You're welcome to the foot of the cross again. There is nothing we can do that would outrun his grace. So if you are in that position today, here's my appeal. If you've been dancing with the wrong partner for a little bit too long, if you're singing Casey and Jojo to the world, <laughs> if you're looking across the dance floor at God going, I just want to be with you again, don't stay at a distance. That, that's a self-imposed thing. His arms are open and he's ready to welcome you back. Say, come on back, son. Come on back, daughter. My grace still works. It's going to work tomorrow. It's going to work next Thursday. <laughs> it's going to work on your darkest hour, and it's going to work when you're at the top of the mountain. It's sufficient for you. I want verse 10 to be something that's more than just words on a page, but in every single one of our realities, that we can rejoice in this wonderful new relationship with God because Jesus has made us his friends. Come on, get back into relationship with Jesus today. Amen. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.